Support for this podcast comes from the Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to making Texas businesses safer, stronger, better. Learn more about how Texas Mutual helps protect your people and your business at texasmutual.com better. This is No Hill for a Climber from Texas Public Radio. I'm Michael Taylor. Melissa Jones is a sexologist and the founder and owner of the Sexology Institute in San Antonio, Texas. And welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Me too. I really want to talk to you, Melissa, because I see your work and your life's mission, as I understand it, in parallel with my own work, just in a different area of expertise. What I mean is when I taught personal finance to college students, especially around issues of debt, there was a statistic that I quoted for them, which is that 80% of people would prefer to never, ever talk about their credit card debts. And interestingly, in that same presentation, the same percentage, 81% of people would prefer to never, ever talk about their sex life. And I think this taboo and shame and silence makes having a healthy relationship with money and debt really difficult. And wondering, does this sound like a version of your mission as well? Oh, 100%. And that's exactly why I went into this field. And, you know, ultimately why the Sexology Institute came to be was exactly for that. Just this fear of uh, normalizing sexuality and, uh, you know, that conversation around sex. So I'm really interested in talking about your origin story. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you began your journey as a sexologist and prior to Sexology Institute, working with young women, girls in the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, which is what you grew up in. What is it that you were trying to teach them at the time that uh, kind of inspired the, the Sexology Institute? Yes. So to kind of go back in time, I grew up in Provo, Utah, which is where Brigham Young University is. LDS, if you live in Provo, Utah, pretty much everyone, especially at that time, was LDS. My husband and I have been married 30 years, but we were actually next door neighbors and grew up with one another. So we've known each other our entire lives. And he was military. He did that to help pay for medical school. So long story short, we ended up here in San Antonio and we were very active in church. And one one of my responsibilities or, you know, callings is what they call them, was to serve over the young women in our organization that were 12 to 18. And it was actually at a summer camp that I had kind of my epiphany of realizing I wanted to go into this field. And there were two distinct experiences. One was watching all of these young women not really know anything about sex because the only thing they were taught was don't talk about it, don't think about it, you know, pretty much shaming them until you get married and then boom, all of a sudden you should know everything you need to know to have a perfect Mm -hmm. relationship, a perfect sexual, you know, intimate relationship. And then the other thing I saw at that camp was the adult women leaders hearing them at, at the same time complain about how unhappy they were and that they weren't having sex and lack of intimacy. And so I came home from that and told my husband about it. And his response was, well, what are you going to do about that? And I thought, well, what do you mean? What am I going to do about that? And he said, well, how are you going to help change that? How are you going to change the narrative? And so that's what began my search into, you know, finding a certification program to become a sexologist. So that's a very challenging question that your husband posed to you. It was. It seems... I'm interested in the idea that probably you were seeing yourself in those girls 12 to 18. 100%. And then, 
and your charge is to help them. And yet you're going, uh, I can see into their future, which is the, your colleagues, the adult married women, and they're not thriving. Exactly. This is a very challenging situation. It was. And then to add to that, at the time, my girls, I have uh, three children, two girls and a boy. My two girls were in that age group. And so also it was a reflection of as a mom, what message am I, you know, am I giving them? What are they going to learn as they go on in life and, you know, potentially find a partner? And what am I teaching them? Is it healthy? Is it not healthy? You know, so it even became that much more of a mission just within my own home to try and figure out that balance. So on a personal note, I have teens right now and it feels very relevant what we model, what we talk about. Um, oh, so completely. I can see it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite upfront and important. So I'm interested in this moment where you probably don't have models within your church community for, hey, maybe we should teach girls, young women in a different way. That feels like a really momentous decision. Can you dig in a little bit more? Your husband asks you a challenging question. What do you do about it? Yeah. So I, then I, like I said, I started to research programs and I found a program where I could become certified as a sexologist, sex educator, sex coach, and started to pursue that. Um, it was in Las Vegas and I'm here in San Antonio. So, you know, just in and of itself, that, that was a challenge. I realized right away that I was just being thrown into the deep end of knowledge. You know, I, I thought my husband and I had an amazing intimate relationship. I felt like we were really lucky in that sense. But boy, my eyes were open immediately to so many different lifestyle options. And, you know, just, just, it, it was, wow, is all I can say. It was just a lot at one time. And, you know, of course, then I'm dealing with the guilt because we were still very active at the time, you know, active in our callings. And so trying to wrap my head around huh, I'm supposed to go to a strip club as part of my education, but that is adamantly opposed with, you know, our church and our, what, you know, our, how the church aligns. How do I reconcile that? And luckily my husband was amazing, super great support. And I actually, at the time, had one of our leaders in our congregation who was super supportive. I went to him and I told him like, hey, I just want you to know up front, I'm doing this education just so you know. And he was like, great. You know, if your husband supports you, I support you. This phrase came to my mind that somebody else I interviewed for the show named Dwight Hobart, a restaurateur in San Antonio, said to me that restaurants or businesses in general are a reflection of the kind of personal identity fantasy of the entrepreneur. And I think about where I understood from your own description how you grew up and who you were and who you self-identified as is in total contradiction to the business that you have built, or at least the first layer appears to be in total contradiction. Oh, yes. Doing what I did, you know, by getting the certification and starting to see clients was 100% the opposite of what I'd been taught. I think, you know, it's interesting though, because I believe, I I agree with him and in in that concept that it's a reflection of who I want to be. But I think it took that self-discovery of becoming a sexologist and going through all that education to realize that was hidden inside of me, you know, that this mm-hmm. strong, you know, sexual proud woman was in there, 
but I couldn't figure out how to get out because I would feel shame around that, you know? So it was super important for me, you know, fast forwarding from then just seeing clients. It was about five years before we opened the Institute. And I think in that five years, I became empowered to be able to realize, Mm -hmm. nope, I'm ready to open this now and be more public. So I have heard you tell a story, which is that in the first week in which you hung out a shingle as a sexologist, you had a bishop in the church, sort of a powerful elder, say, that's fine. I understand what you're doing. I've looked at your website. This is fine. And then fast forward some other short period of time, it turned out to be not fine at all oh, yes. with the authorities in the church. Yeah. Can you just describe some yeah, of that? Yeah, that was, that was horrible. So, you know, I at that time, I was still working with the young women, but it was for what we would call a stake. A stake encompasses like, you know, 10 congregations. So it's pretty much it was the south side, southwest side of San Antonio. All the young women who go to the LDS church, that's who I was over. And there's our bishop and then there's a stake president above him for leadership. Our bishop and our stake president knew what I was doing. I had him look at my website just to make sure, like, hey, are you okay with everything on here? Because we did have intimacy devices, things like that, um, just listed as tools to be helpful. I wasn't selling them. I wasn't selling anything at the time. It was just, here's resources. But it turns out people higher in the area, you know, above us even in the state going to Salt Lake headquarters found out about what I was doing. And I immediately got released from all of my callings because they told me I couldn't be teaching the young women and be an example for the young women and also have my job. And so it, that was devastating. That was really a hard time for me just because I felt so much guilt that I was letting down all of these young women when they were my inspiration to start doing this in the first place, you know? So that was really difficult. So you immersed yourself in a few years of training. Mm-hmm. You set yourself up professionally to use the training specifically for the mission of the girls in the church. And then the church says, you're removed from your duties to these girls. Exactly. And I mean, as you can imagine, it was just, it, I was crushed. I mean, it, it took me, a, it, there are still times when I think back to that and it will make me just start crying, you know, but it took me a, a good couple of years and some therapy to realize like, okay, I can move on from this now, but there was just so much guilt involved in that. And then, and then I would vacillate between guilt and just such anger that, you know, I, I did everything in the right order but still this happened. And then anger at people that they didn't understand what I was doing. And then that cycle would then go back into, okay, I'm going to try even harder now because obviously there's all these people who don't even understand that sex can be healthy, you know? So yeah, that, that was an interesting time in my life. Right. And it also feels like what you observed, the need for your mission was precisely because people inside the church were not getting the messages that you thought were healthy. So, and around the same time all of that was happening, my son, who's my youngest, came out to us as being gay, which our response was, well, we kind of knew that, but <laughs> we love you and okay. it doesn't change anything at all. But then that was what started my dilemma also with how the church treats the whole LGBTQ community and, you know, ultimately that's what helped me with my decision to to leave the church. Can we talk a bit about the store? I know what it looks like, but I'd appreciate if you could describe who you designed for and who is your ideal customer originally or now. So I came home one day from seeing clients and I said to my husband, you know what? I really want to open a brick and mortar location 
that we can sell these products, but I want half of it devoted to education. I started to figure, you know, in my mind thinking, what's important to me as people come in? And number one was the aesthetic. If you think a lot about, you know, your typical sex stores, you know, so to speak, they're, they're dark, they're black, they're pink, they're red, you know, it's very much geared towards, I think, men prim- primarily, you know, and that idea of it all being tantalizing and, oh, wow. But I didn't want that. It was really important for me to people, for people to walk in and feel safe immediately and know that we had staff that were knowledgeable, that had the background, you know, to help them. But it was super, super important for me to have it be a safe environment. And so number one was figuring out our color scheme, which is, you know, the aquas and the teals, which is very calming, which is so opposite from any other store that I've ever been in that I've ever seen. Your logo is a windmill. Does that have a meaning? Yeah, so it has a couple of meanings. First of all, I, I love windmills. I just think they're amazing. And the whole idea of them that they harness energy, I think is just so cool. But part of it was kind of a nod to Moulin Rouge and that idea of that whole institution in Paris, France. But also to me, going back to that harnessing energy, to me, it just represented an orgasm. I know that seems so strange, but it represents an orgasm to me in that sometimes, you know, the wind isn't blowing very much and it can take a long time for you to build that energy and build to that point of having an amazing orgasm. And other times, you know, the wind is just right and boy, that happens really quickly. And so just that idea of we all go through, you know, those phases in life where sometimes sex comes really naturally, other times it doesn't. And I know that seems like such a stretch, but that's what I see when I look at a windmill. We'll take a break, and when we come back, Melissa and I talk about the many difficulties of running a business with the word sex in it. In Texas business, success doesn't happen by accident. Even the best operations need careful planning, a great team, and loads of hard work. Texas Mutual Insurance Company has helped all kinds of Texas businesses grow and thrive for more than 30 years with expert safety guidance and great workers' compensation coverage. With the right workers' comp partner, business is safer, stronger, better. Learn more at texasmutual.com better. I gather that there are special difficulties running a business with the word sex in the name. Can you describe those to me? Yes. So first of all, it was very hard initially just to find a payment processor that would take us and also then a bank that would take us and let us have an account. But it's also living in fear all the time. I mean, I hear stories from other sexologists and other uh, stores that are similar to us that all of a sudden QuickBooks will just shut down their entire business and say, we're not going to work with you anymore. Or PayPal will, will seize their funds. And actually for me in Personally, when I first started doing this years and years ago, and I was just seeing clients, PayPal was my processor, and they shut down my account and froze all the money I had in there. And it took me a year of fighting to get it back. And then on top of that, you know, we add in, how do we advertise, you know, and and most advertising now, of course, is done through social media, through Instagram, Facebook, you know, TikTok, things like that. I mean, it's almost daily, I bet, that we get something flagged or we'll get our account suspended for a couple of days or whatever. And we're really careful about what we put on there and the content we put on there, but still just because we have the word sex and sexology, 
it will get flagged. And some of them are, are funny. Like there was one that got flagged that we for new we got flagged for nudity and it was a picture of a pajama set laid on a couch. There was no person in it. And it, so uh, you know, it's just it's it, it's mind-boggling sometimes. At one point your website said, "No, I do not have sex with clients." Yep. And I'm imagining that being a woman with the word sex in your business name, I imagine this is going to bring out the trolls online. I, yes. I, again, that's like a whole other, I could go on an hour with examples of when this is hap- of, you know, this happening, but absolutely 100% people, and no matter how many exclaimers we have on the website or, you know, in the paperwork that clients sign before they come in, it's there again, you know, there's no interaction, there's no touching, there's no sex involved. It's so interesting to me how many people th- still think, oh no, they're wrong. I'm sure she has sex with me when I get to the to the session, you know. So I've gotten really good at um, reading all the intake forms and the assessments before I actually see clients, and have picked up on all the little clues to know. Okay, this person really does not want help. This person is here thinking that I'm just going to give him a quick blowjob or what? Oh, can I say that? Sorry, have sex with him basically. Since we're talking about the nexus of money and sex, do you have a political view on the legalization or decriminalization of sex work? Yeah, actually. I'm 100% for decriminalization. I really am. I think that it should be decriminalized. As far as legalization, I feel like there's so much to that. And, you know, in countries where there is legalization, there's pros and cons. But I think absolutely if we as a country could decriminalize it to begin with, that would be huge. I think that that's important for sure. Can you spell out a little bit more the differences between legalization and decriminalization? So decriminalization, you cannot be arrested or prosecuted if you are providing sex work. Um, Obviously, legalization would make it legal for sex work. But then with that comes, you know, a whole caveat of regulations and rules and, you know, potentially less money. You know, there's and then also you have that fear then of, well, there's still going to be prostitution, or I'm sorry, sex work on the side um, happening without all of those boundaries and those barriers. So then are we setting up just another nexus of, I guess, unsafe sex work happening, you know? So decriminalization, of course, I think is for sure the first step and needs to happen. Can we talk about success? Where are you in the journey of the Sexology Institute? Have you arrived? Is success still ahead for you? That's a really, really good question. And I'm going to answer that in a couple of yes and no. <laughs> so I feel every day that we are a success. And there are times, uh, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, that I I get discouraged and I feel like, are we even making a difference? You know, especially during COVID as I'm trying to figure out how am I going to pay rent and pay my staff and keep things going? You know, is this really worth it? And then I will get you know, a note or a a thank you, or we'll get, um, you know, a review, feedback, whatever, saying thank you so much for how wonderful you are for being there for, you know, helping with whatever, helping with X, Y, and Z, or I had my first orgasm, you know, or my partner and I for the very first time, you know, could communicate and it's like, you know, thanks to you and your store. And so those to me are little successes. And that's why I keep going every day when it's difficult. When you think about 16-year-old Melissa Jones, could she have ever imagined you doing this business? Or was there some part of you that absolutely, yes, could have imagined running this business? 
Uh, no, there was no part of me that would have imagined this at all. Never. You know, I try not to have regrets in life, but I do. It's not a regret as much as I wonder if 16-year-old Melissa had envisioned this. How would it be different? What life lessons would have I, you know, would I have learned differently? And I really wouldn't change that because it makes me who I am. It makes me compassionate. It makes me have empathy for clients who come to me for the very first time, you know, in their 50s, their 60s, saying I've never orgasmed and I'd like to and know how scary that can be. You know, so without those experiences I had initially, I wouldn't be that person. And I wouldn't be the coach that I am, the sexologist that I am, you know, the mom, the wife. It wouldn't I'd be a different person. The types of things you're describing and helping clients do, this is life transforming. And it feels like there's unlimited need. There is. There really, I mean, and some of my most rewarding, there was one of the very first clients I worked with. She was 75 and had never orgasmed before. And her, her husband of, you know, many, many, many years had died. And she realized she didn't want to die without ever feeling that. And so, you know, helping her through that process and then get, having her show up to our our session and just being like, I did it. I finally did it. And it was amazing. And I said, how do you feel? And she said, I feel fantastic, but I also feel really sad. I missed out for this all my whole life. Those are the little rewards. That's what makes me keep going. I am so glad to speak with you, Melissa Jones, and I applaud your mission. After we recorded this conversation, and just one week before this episode launched, the Sexology Institute was broken into and had a tremendous amount stolen by thieves, some of it irreplaceable antiques she had on display in the shop. The Institute had to close temporarily. But as Melissa and I spoke just one day after the break-in, I was struck by her optimism and resilience, buoyed by her community, her customers, and especially other small businesses both locally and even nationwide had offered to help her rebuild inventory. And Melissa told me she's incredibly gratified by all of their support. No Hill for a Climber is produced by Ben Henry and Dan Katz at Texas Public Radio. 